Hear the word of God from from Revelation chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed under the, uh, with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who, quote, will will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, end quote. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient, uh, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, quote, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of the Messiah. For the accusers of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. End quote. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then, from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It's always exciting to come up here after the book of Revelation scripture is read, and you guys are like, what's he going to say about that? (laughs) I I even think to myself, I know what I'm going to say about it, but I hear it read again, I'm like, hmm, what are we going to dive into today? So this is fun time. I hope you're doing well today. We're deep into our series in the book of Revelation, and I hope you guys are getting as much from our time in this as I am. I'm enjoying this time together. The book of Revelation is complex, full of oftentimes confusing book full of allusions and imagery and just so many references to the Old Testament that if you're not intimately familiar with the Old Testament, you'll be missing probably about 95% of the allusions to the Old Testament. 
For your benefit, the pastors just released a podcast this past week, um, kind of talk about how to interpret the book of Revelation, how to understand some of the elements of it. So I recommend listening to that. We were like trying to, try to keep it short, it ended up being 55 minutes long, and we barely scratched the surface of it, so, uh, but you can listen to one at a half speed if you want. Although when I speak, you probably want to go down to half speed, and when they speak, uh, faster, I don't know. Either way, I highly recommend listening to this podcast. It's, it's very good, and we really enjoyed making it, just diving into some of the nuances of interpreting the book of Revelation. Today, we're in the chap- chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, and we just had the seven seals. Now we're followed by the seven trumpets. Then we get this incredible vision in chapter 12. It's a vision about a woman and a dragon, which seems right up my alley. This is like made for me. Those who love Lord of the Rings and fantasy books and smog and all that other kind of stuff. I'm like, this, is, this vision is made for me. Theologian Scott Duvall states that Revelation 12 stands as a theological heart of the book because it shows why the church faces spiritual hostility in this world and how God provides the victory. Remember, once again, these are people who John is writing to while exiled right to his old churches, and he's basically telling them who are being persecuted, people who are suffering economically, physically, spiritually, emotionally, who are being persecuted by the Roman Empire. He's writing to them, and he's reminding them who sits enthroned. And he's reminding them, guys, this is why you're suffering right now, because you're in the midst of this. And your hope is that in the midst of your suffering, look at who sits enthroned. This world is tough, but Jesus reigns. And he will fulfill his good work that he started. So this is a reminder to his people from an exiled prisoner who gets this incredible vision that God blesses him with. Now this beautiful vision has some difficulties for people to understand and interpret because there aren't very, that many clear labels. There are no name tags for everybody except for one person. So there's no name tags for the woman. The woman's not identified as so-and-so. For the child, there is one for the dragon. He's called the Satan, or Satan, the adversary, the devil who leads the whole world astray. So what's happening here in this vision? What's the purpose of it? Good questions. During my sabbatical, I had the awesome privilege of taking a deep dive into some of my family history. I interviewed my parents, my my grandmother, my aunts and my uncles and my cousins, and I learned a ton. I don't know if you guys ever had the opportunity to do something like that, but it was so incredible for me. I got to hear stories of their hopes and their dreams. Uh, I saw our connectedness. I got to see stories of struggle and of joy. I got to hear stuff that I didn't want to hear about. I got to hear stuff that I did want to hear about and that they were trying to hide from me. I got to hear stories of just incredible about like my mom made up a million stories. My mom was one of those people who likes to exaggerate stories. You know, and even makeup stories, but in her mind, they're not really made up because they tell, told a, taught a message. And so, like, I got to hear true stories, actually. Um, so it was incredible to, to learn so much about my family. Um, I got to, I loved seeing how connected to them I was and how I was a part of a bigger story than just my own experience. I got this chance to see familial sin, sin that expressed itself over and over again in my father and my grandfather and some of our other relatives around us. I got to see the results of sin. It was enlightening, it was revealing. And this deep dive left me feeling more connected to my family, more connected to my history, and kind of added something to my identity. It also revealed hurts, generational sins, and it kind of brought out my own natural sin proclivities and where, where they might come from. 
This deep dive was so helpful. And I believe in so many ways, this is what Jesus is doing through this vision given to John. In this, in this vision here, he's taking the reader and giving them a, a, this, this idea of right after they saw this heavy, heavy vision of judgment, of seals, and of trumpets. He's given this vision of like, come out, let's take a bird's eye view, let's step back, and let's look at our history. Let's look at a meta-narrative. Let's look at the med- bigger and greater narrative that is our history, and that is the history of this cosmic battle that you're in the middle of. Let's see what you're experiencing in light of the larger picture of the greater context. And that's what's happening here in this beautiful vision. So in this vision, I want to introduce you to some characters. The number one first character I want to introduce you to is the woman. First is this woman, clothed with the sun, with 12 stars in her crown, the moon at her feet. Now, that's all confusing, and you can find different ways to interpret that, but the simplest way for people who knew the Jewish tradition is that you would know that this, predict, uh, this, this depicted Israel in so many ways. As a matter of fact, in the vision given to Joseph in Genesis 37, it says Jacob is the sun, Rachel the moon, the patriarchs of Israel, the stars. Remember, 12 stars, 12 tribes. So the woman here is a metaphor, people would understand this, is a metaphor of the actual nation of Israel, the covenant people, right? So it's not a literal woman that we're looking for in the future, this is actually the covenant uh, people of God, Israel. And she gives birth in verse five to a son who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. John's quoting Psalm two here, verse nine, which is a messianic psalm that speaks about the rule of Jesus Christ. So Jesus descends from the people of Israel. That is that he himself, belonging to the covenant community, comes from the line of Israel. But this woman is not merely a symbol of just the Old Testament Israel. Notice that even after her son is taken up into heaven, she continues. Her story continues. She's still the, the focus of Satan's opposition. You see that in verse 6, right? So Jesus, we are told, is caught up to God in his throne, whereas the woman takes refuge in the wilderness. Times, time, times and a half, times three and a half years or 42 months, roughly. A number that is repeated, actually, through these two chapters. This is really a way of talking about the whole church age. That's what the number is, a metaphor of alluding to the 70 weeks in Daniel 9. And that means that this woman is a symbol for the people of God, both before and after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. She's the old and new covenant church. One people of God from whom our Savior came and over whom he still rules and reigns. Does that make sense? You with me so far? So that's who the woman is in this label of this cosmic conflict. Two, the dragon. In verse three, she's opposed. She's opposed by a great red dragon equipped with seven heads and ten horns. Seven, as you guys know, is, is a number associated with deity. It's a number associated with being God. Now, in the ancient world, unlike today, the heart... The heart, not the head, is the organ of thought and intellect. So having seven heads is not about intelligence, but about authority. So what he's saying here is that he's not intelligent, it's not the heart that led, but authority by having seven heads. So you put together seven heads is a claim to be authoritative. This is a counterfeit divine authority being claimed by the dragon. And similarly, number 10 is used to convey completeness, and a horn is an ancient symbol of power. So the ten horned dragon tells that he appears to have power, unbelievable power and potency. And just in case we kind of have any doubt now, like who is this dragon? That she just clearly says it. You know, no ambiguity here. It just says he's the great dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the world astray. He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. 
So this is the evil one. This is the serpent in Genesis 3. This is the, the one, the deceiver, the accuser, the liar who led our first parents into sin and misery. And John says that his tail sweeps a third of the stars from heaven. Now this could be in reference to fallen angels. But whatever it means, it's clear that this dragon is a figure of great and fearful power. And if you look at verse four, he sits in wait, poised to, to devour the child. Jesus is the great enemy. He wants nothing more than see his destruction. Now this could allude to King Herod. It could allude to uh, the, the, the many times that the children of Israel were attacked and looked to be preyed upon, whether it's by Pharaoh or by others. And so we wait with bated breath to see what will happen when the woman gives birth. But no sooner, literally in this vision, this, as soon as the baby gives birth in this vision, he immediately jumps to Christ's ascension. It's fascinating that he skips all the details, doesn't talk about Christ's earthly ministry in this vision, but instead he wishes for a moment not to, not to minimize what Jesus did in his life and his suffering, but rather John's, uh, this vision's purpose is to give us a highlight into Christ's kingly reign. Rest throughout the Bible, you'll see it. You'll see it over and over again. We focus on Jesus' life and his death, but this book, this vision, is intentionally pointing us to not just that. They want us to see that the reign of Christ is what we are focusing on, and that is our hope. So that's what Jesus' ascension was. He's a visible display of Christ's coronation as a victorious, conquering king who reigns over all things from the throne of God. The third character is the child. And it's so important for us to clearly see as we take in John's depiction of this fearful dragon with his claims to divine authority and absolute power that the dragon doesn't reign. Let me say that again. It's so important. We see this fearsome dragon, right? And this imagery, it's huge. I mean, guys, when I think of dragons, I think of dragons. I hope you're not thinking of like Mushu and like, like Mulan. I'm talking about a dragon. Fearful image, seven heads, Hydra-esque, crowns and horns. The image here, that, I mean, he's so clearly being stated. This crazy figure looks so powerful, but who reigns? The child. The child reigns. And don't we often miss it? We can become so aware of the oppressive reality of, our, of this evil in this age and virtually forget that even though things appear to be bad, Jesus Christ reigns triumphant over us all. The truth it's sometimes hard to see when darkness obscures it. The truth is hard to see when you come face to face with the dragon and you see something scary in your life. Death and suffering, loss of job, cancer. And you look at that and you say, what's a dragon? And that's scary. It's so easy to let our sufferings, our afflictions, our attacks make us forget the beautiful and powerful truth that no matter how scary it is, the child reigns. Jesus conquers. It's like the lyrics from the old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. John says the dragon doesn't have an equal. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Guys, the often, often overlooked truth is Christ's kingdom is forever. And so the, even though the fearsome dragon is fearsome, but Jesus is already the victor. And do you get that? He has won. He's already been crowned. The dragon stands defeated. Although he's not seized to wage his war, he's already been defeated. So that's the big picture we get, the satellite view. 
the bird's eye view is we see this cast of characters and this cosmic conflict. And that's what we look at when we look at John at the next, next verses from 7 to 17. We see another account of this same cosmic conflict, but on a different scale and in a different way with some more detail. It starts off with Michael as angels fighting against Satan and his forces, right? And for me, once again, I love these images that it brings to my mind because I got this picture of like this archangel Michael with these wings and these swords in his hands, you know? I'm like, if I was an artist, I would draw that, but I'm not. Because if I drew it, it looked like a stick figure holding like, is that, what is that, chopsticks fighting? I don't know what's happening here. But I'm not. So I just picture it in my head and it's really cool. I wish you could see it, but no, you can't. But Daniel 10.21 tells us that Michael is an angelic defender of Israel. So this is really just another perspective on the age-old conflict between darkness and light, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between Israel and the nation, between Christ and the devil, the church and the world. Back behind the warfare of the church with sin and evil, there's this cosmic battle that's happening in the heavenly places. And Satan, we're told, is on the losing side. Now, I love this. Notice the text doesn't actually say Michael defeats Satan. It says that Michael and Satan fought and Satan was cast down, not by Michael in heaven, but by the child of the woman who was born and died and rose on earth. Verse 10 tells us when Satan's defeat took place. It says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of the testimony. Now, already, he's thrown down and defeated. Now. It's so important for us as Christians to get this straight. The outcome of the cosmic conflict is not in question. Satan has been cast down. When Jesus began his public ministry, I want you guys to get this. When he began, do you guys remember the first words he ever said in public? Mark 1, verse 15. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. And in Luke chapter 10, when he sent his disciples out to preach the same message, and they came back rejoicing, they were like, even the devils obey you. And he remember he said, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When the virgin bore a son and called him Jesus, the kingdom of darkness began to crumble. And when Christ in the wilderness answered all the devil's assaults and temptations, and when Satan's rule was undermined, he started to crumble some more. And when at last he declared victory at the cross, when he says, it is finished, Satan's dominion fell and he was cast down. Not in the way you would think. Not in the night with a jousting lance charging the dragon. But as a lamb who lived a perfect life of obedience and love, who sacrificed himself, laid himself down and conquered and cast down the evil one, the dragon, the accuser, and established a brand new kingdom. But the accuser, the accuser is there, and as we rejoice, I want you to notice that as we rejoice in the good news, the dragon is called the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them day and night before our God. And that's his favorite tactic. He hurls accusations, points out failures, Highlight sin. 
You see, the thing is, he has been cast down. He's lost the authority. He's lost the power. He's lost the victory. So what can he do? What does he have left? He has the ability to accuse, to lie, to deceive, to be an adversary. So he points out to you and he says stuff like, oh, look at you. You kidding me? If all your sin, you can sit here in church on Sunday morning? Please. You can't, I mean, come on. You might look good on Sunday, but you don't care about God the rest of the week. What are you doing here? Do you, do you really look at yourself? Do you really think God can forgive you? Do you really think anyone can love you if they really knew you? I mean, really knew you? And you hear these voices, you hear these attacks. You say, could you, even you, be known and loved? How do we answer Satan's attacks? How do we answer the, the lies of the accuser, the deceiver? And oftentimes it's not even lies, it's often truth that he hurls at us, but a different way of understanding the truth, isn't it? I mean, honestly, he doesn't need to make anything up with me. I mean, knowing my own heart, he doesn't need to tell me how, he doesn't have to make up lies about me. I know how messed up my own heart is. So how do I stand? How do I stand up against these voices and these lies, the accuser? Verse 11 says this, is they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Martin Luther tells a story of an encounter with Satan in which, he, in which the devil wrote out a long catalog of Luther's sin. Right, and Luther tells a story about every one of them. He wrote it out, accurate and true. Luther, you've done this, you did this, you think this, you've not done this, all this stuff. And Satan asked him, how could, how could you hope to be saved? Are you kidding me? Look at this list. See how long this is? And Luther says, all these I freely admit. They're all true. But right at the end of your list, you should write down this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Isn't that precisely John's point here? This vision, this message, the point is the blood of the lamb triumphs over sin, over Satan and his accusations. And so when Satan attacks you and you feel the hurt on your conscience, when you're broken before the accusations, when the weight of your sin crushes you, you need to boldly proclaim the truth that the blood of Christ cleanses me from all my sin. The lamb has died and I am forgiven. You're defeated, Satan. I am known, I am loved, and I'm a part of this incredible kingdom. So when the lies of the accuser comes at you, we stand. And this is what was happening to the early church. The early church was being told that, hey, you should forsake God. Worship Caesar. He'll provide all you need for your sustenance in your life. He'll provide the good life for you. And they stand before that. How could, they say, how could you possibly believe that you could be loved? You're not even doing the right sacrifices. You're not doing the right things. And you stand before the accuser. You stand before him on the truth, on the foundation that there is no condemnation now in Christ Jesus. And for those who are called beloved child of God, that is your identity. That is who you are. And you can rest comfortable and assured in that. My son Hudson was adopted two and a half years ago. And I love Hudson, oh man, I love Hudson. I know most of you guys all love Hudson because that kid is cute. I mean, I'm just, I'm being, you know, trying not to be biased here, but that's a cute kid. But my son can do nothing now that will separate him from being my son. There's nothing. He's mine. I don't care who you are. I don't care what kind of power you have. He is my son. And if I can speak that with such confidence, how much more powerfully is the word of God over you? You're his. Forgiven in Christ. Don't let the lies of the deceiver attack you. Stand up. Speak the truth. 
know who you are. And I'm not saying it's easy, guys. I'm not saying all the time you're going to be here and it's going to be like, whoa, who cares? Because right now, guys, reality is Satan's in his death throes. Satan's in his death throes. You know what that means? You know, it's the last bit of energy right before he dies. You guys ever play like a video game that's like a villain? I'm so nerding out right now, but okay. You know what I'm saying? There's a bad guy in the video game. You're like, oh, I'm about to win. But all of a sudden, he's like transforms forms and he's like more powerful now. Power Rangers, you know, when you find the bad guy, all of a sudden he gets bigger. And, no? Because okay. you can say, you can say it's all true. Satan's been cast down. The lamb has triumphed by his blood. But then why is it so hard for holiness? Why is being faithful so hard? Why, is it, why do I still struggle with sin? Why do I still doubt? Why do I have all these issues still? That's a great question. And if you look at verses 12 to 17, Jesus tells us the reason that Satan, even in his defeat, is still relentless against his assaults against us because he knows his time is short. Having been cast out, he still pursues the woman, the church. And verse 15 says, a flood comes from his mouth to sweep her away. He lies and he deceives and twists the truth and distorts the gospel and sows the seeds of error and suggests the enjoyment of sin, all in an attempt to destroy the church. And you look and you think, why is the church still so messed up? If Satan's defeated, why are we still messed up as a church? Because he's attacking in his death throes. And this is a call to the church to say, hold truth and firm to the gospel. Verse 17 even says the dragon became furious and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. He's a defeated enemy, but in his rage, in the light of his defeat, he's no less dangerous. He may even be more so. And the balance of our text, the detention of our text is so helpful that we need to understand this and grasp. Satan is defeated, Christ reigned, sin is forgiven, yet we must not become complacent. Because he fights on, driven not in an attempt to win the war, but in his spite and malice, his unrelenting rage, in the midst of war that he knows he's lost, he wants to bring as many down with him as possible. Does that make sense? So we fight, we are fighting spiritual battles against an enemy that is not flesh and blood. This is from the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes. He says there are kind of two types of opposite errors into which our race kind of falls when it comes about the devil and Satan. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy kind of interest in them. They themselves are pleased, the devils are pleased with either error and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So that's from the screw tape letters. In other words, we fall often into one of two camps. One camp where it's everything is of the devil, and we look for the devil in everything. The devil made me do it. Oh, that's attack of the devil. Watch out, that's devil worship. Most likely it's your sin and laziness that made you do that. Or we fall into where we don't acknowledge that Satan exists. We do the whole usual suspects thing and fall for the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. He is real and he is active. Do you believe that? Do you realize that his greatest tricks are making you care not for him or for God or for the things of God? I want you to understand this. The devil doesn't come out and go, boo. His goal is not to scare you. His tactic instead will make you long for comfort and material things before righteousness and sacrifice. Do you hear that? He'll pull you away from worship and community and make you more self-reliant. The devil isn't looking for you to make a deal with him. He's looking for you to say, I don't need the devil, I don't need God, I just need me. He doesn't want, to, he doesn't want his name in lights, he wants to put your name in lights. Do you get that? 
If you'll take your own sin nature for comfort and material things, fleeting pleasures, laziness, pride, lust, and push you to them. Our fight is against, you're still the same. The truth of the gospel is what we need. And so we need to understand that devil's tactics are not going to be this kind of horror movie, scary thing that we try to sometimes make it out to be. It's going to use our own sin nature and the issues that we often, in this day and age, say that we are God and we don't need God ourselves. And use that against us. My people understand that we are fighting a waging a war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. See, guys, we're in what we call the wilderness years. This is where we're at. It says in verse 14, the woman was given two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she used to be nourished for a time and times half a time. And like Israel in the Exodus, the people of God escaped into the wilderness to a place John said back in verse six, prepared by God to live securely during what we call the church age, a time, a time, and a half a time. 1,260 days, 42 months, basically symbolic time, imagery, to show the time between the first coming and the final return of Jesus. But understand the image, my people. This is where we now live, in the wilderness. We are pilgrim people. We are sojourners. We are elect exiles. We have no enduring city now. This world is not our home. We are passing through, heading somewhere else. And while we're in the wilderness, you see the sex, the Lord God defends and protects us. What a comfort there is in these images. The serpent opens his mouth and this torrent, this flood comes pouring forth. These lies come pouring forth. These attacks of the devil come pouring forth. But verse 15 says, the earth comes out to help the woman and swallows the river that the dragon poured out. God in his providence hears this, and this is not explicit in this text, but this is what I'm reading into it. So hear me on this. God in his providence provides a way, provides a protection for his church. Lift your eyes to the hills. Where does your help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. God is, is our defender and we take refuge in him. So he's providing us help in this time, in this church age. But I think this, hear me, this is where I kind of do my own interpretation. I think the earth's coming up, the help, the refuge that God gives us in this church age when the attacks of the devil comes at us, I believe that the help he gives us is the church body itself. The local church to provide refuge and rest, comfort and hope. So when the lies of the devil is attacking you, that your brothers and sisters in the local church that you do ministry and life together can say, no, 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 that's not your truth. And when the lies of the devil, when you fall into the lies of materialism and consumerism and comfort and self-seeking or God or your own way, the church can rise up and swallow up those lies and say, no, that's not what you're called to. You're called to something so much more. And in this place, while we wait for our city that is being formed, a new heavens and a new earth, God has given us the church in the wilderness as a means of refuge and safety and protection as we're elect exiles wandering the wilderness. Not without purpose, heading somewhere. Do you hear me? So I say, let's rise up, Waypoint Church. May we be a weary rest for those whom the devil is attacking. May we rise up, Waypoint Church. May we provide shelter from those facing the lies of the adversary. May we rise up, church, and may we be an anchor for those who are being swept away by the currents of this world. Take heart in this vision, my people. 
We're part of a grand cosmic conflict, incredible story, and an unbelievable narrative. That's ours. The devil may rage now, but we have the truth of the reigning Christ and the reality of protection from the flood given to us in our church. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this world with devils full, God, is nothing compared to the gospel truth of who we are. God, we thank you, God, that our battle is, is a cosmic one that you've already won. You've already won. You're the conquering one. And you've conquered by laying your life and dying and making a ransom for all of us. So God, may we face the lies and the attacks of the evil one. May we face the lies and attacks as you protect us in the safety and sanctity of this church, God. May we face these attacks by knowing and speaking truth of the gospel over and over again to ourselves and to each other. God, may we take heart and such comfort in knowing that Jesus, you reign. We give you all praise and all glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.